Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 53. It's not always about ability. It's oftentimes about mindset. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped, and now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Hi there, I'm Sue, and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Whether you own a brick-and-mortar store, sell online, or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. And today, I am so excited to introduce you to Jane Mossbacher Morris. Jane is the founder of To The Market, a socially inspired business that economically empowers vulnerable women through artisan enterprise. They work with over 25 co-ops in over 25 countries to design, source, and sell raw materials and finished products. These products range from home goods and jewelry to bags and baby gifts. They've been featured in magazines such as Elle, Glamour, People, Style Watch, Good Housekeeping, and Yoga Journal, to name a few. To The Market recently launched its first exclusive wholesale line. This allows retailers to purchase wholesale products directly through to the market. Wow, Jane, you have a lot going on. We really do. It's exciting. Thanks for having me. Is there anything you'd like to add to that intro before we get started? I think that was a beautiful summary. Thank you. Perfect. As our listeners know, we like to revolve the conversation around the life of a motivational candle. The candle gives us a little bit of a more indirect look into you and also shines the light on you while you share your stories and experiences. So are you ready to light it up, Jane? Let's do it. All right. Let's start with this candle. Let's envision what this looks like for you, your perfect motivational candle. What color is it and what would be the quote on your candle? My motivational candle would be white, and my motivational quote would be, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them, which was said by Walt Disney, who is my major inspiration. And so how did you apply this to your life? What was your dream that you wanted to come true? There have been a lot of dreams that I have had interest in in pursuing and and have been able to pursue them at different chapters of my life. At this stage, my dream was creating a way to economically empower vulnerable women through artisan enterprise. And that really came to fruition through the creation of To The Market, the business that we're talking about today. What I love about Disney's quote is that it really is about your mindset when you're pursuing your dream. And I love that he says, if we have the courage to pursue them, because it's not always about ability. It's oftentimes about mindset. You're so right. I mean, you will hear different people who've been very successful and you go back in their history and you find that they weren't the best student in school. Maybe they were kind of a rebel in terms of following the rules. And then here they build these huge businesses. So it really is. It's passion, commitment, and like you said, determination in the dream, Mm -hmm. following the dream for sure. All right. So to the market is really interesting. It's a less traditional type business than many of the types of businesses we've had on the podcast. So I'd love for you to take us back to that very first time. How did you get the idea of to the market? Well, I started my career at the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C. And my work at the department really exposed me to many of the conditions in which women and girls were living 
overseas. And I really began to see how little control many women had over their life and was really tracing a lot of that lack of control to having no control over their finances. And as my career progressed and I was exposed more and more to different types of vulnerable communities, and when I say vulnerable communities, I'm talking about communities that maybe are living in a conflict zone, or these are communities that have experienced some form of disease. So let's say HIV AIDS, or a community that may be a survivor of some form of abuse like human trafficking. And when I was spending time with these communities, I really became more and more convinced that to regain control, even a iota of control over their life, helping them access and earn some form of an income would be a really, really powerful way to give them control again, because that little bit of income allows them to begin to make basic choices over their life. Things like, what do I want to eat today? Where do I want to live? But I wasn't sure how I was going to make that happen until I was working almost exclusively on fighting human trafficking and ended up visiting two cooperatives in Calcutta, India that were employing human trafficking survivors as artisans. And one of these co-ops was making sari blankets and scarves and another was making organic cotton bags. And I was so taken by the concept that these human trafficking survivors were being served in a totally different way. They were being served by job creation. And it was really at that moment that it sort of clicked to me that I wanted to help connect these artisan cooperatives around the world that are employing these vulnerable women to Western buyers and consumers so that Western buyers and consumers can make purchases with impact and these artisans on the ground can pursue a meaningful and restorative work life that helps them reconnect with their sense of dignity. I love that you use the word restorative. I mean, that really makes sense to me because here they've been through horrible and terrible times. And instead of just giving handouts to help them with their lifestyle, you're giving them skills with their craft, but then a channel for them to feel respected and valued and to just bring back the appreciation of life because they're doing something that's meaningful. Absolutely. I think that the social services, which is sort of the things that we think of like immediate housing and food are really important in the short term, but it's not sustainable to provide that type of support, nor do the survivors want that type of support for the duration of their life. And so there really has to be some type of transition. And I love the idea that you can have immediate response to difficulty through social services, but then you can transition these communities to another form of service, which is through artisan enterprise. And now how long have you been doing to the market from the conception and actual start with the first group to this point? How many years has it been so far? To the market formally launched in November of 2014. So really, um, we're only about a year and four months old. Okay. And so with some of these artisans that you are now employing, we'll get into the little bit more of the structure or something later, but are you seeing that it's sustainable? In other words, they're not just starting, but they're continuing to do it up to this point. Well, one of the important parts of our model is that we only partner with cooperatives that are actually already in existence. 
So we felt like we could have a bigger impact if we were partnering with existing artisan groups and helping to scale those groups rather than finding individual artisans and helping them to organize. And the reason we made that decision was that there are so many cooperatives of women working together already out there that need assistance that we felt like our network could be more impactful for existing cooperatives in having the time of identifying specific individuals and trying to encourage them to work together. That makes sense, because if there are so many out there already, you're duplicating efforts of something that's already out there. Exactly. Yeah. I would also guess that just the ability then to ensure that you're going to be providing the products that you're promising people, you're more able to do that because you have somebody already working with these cooperatives. So you know that the product flow is more likely to come. That's a great point. It's really important to us to have a very strong sense for the quality and the production capacity of the co-ops that we're working with. And so we have a system through which we work with these cooperatives where we start with a very low risk relationship and move as they prove themselves out into dynamics where they have more sales volume and we work with them on potentially bigger accounts. All right. So a lot of our listeners, Jane, are people that are just starting out thinking of developing something. And so although what you're doing is very different than what some other people will do, walk us through a little bit. Okay, you already had linkage and an understanding that there was a need out there when you were working with the State Department and then the whole human trafficking in Calcutta. What happened after that? And how did you get to the point where you could identify where these cooperatives were and that you actually structured it into a business? Well, I think something that I'm really glad that I did, and I encourage anyone who's thinking about starting a business or a nonprofit or any sort of project to do, is I really had an idea in my head and in my heart about wanting to create this economic opportunity for these women, but I wasn't sure how. And what I'm glad I didn't do is jump into something that was sort of half-baked. I really took time to study different models of how to work with communities. I really took time to understand what people were already doing. So I wasn't duplicating efforts, as you mentioned earlier. And the folks that were already working in this space in some form, I talked to as many people as I could. And I asked them about what was working for them, what wasn't working, if they were me, what do they wish they could have changed if they started over. And that was so helpful for me in refining what our model was going to look like. I then took that information, which I also think is a really helpful exercise, and I compared that information about what the space I wanted to work in looked like, and I compared that to what I felt like my personal strengths were. And it was really the overlap of where I felt like there was a need in the space I wanted to work in that overlapped with a strength that I already had that I felt like there's a good fit. Because there's certainly plenty of gaps in areas that I'm passionate about that I'm just not the right person to work on those issues. But I really felt like when I did the due diligence process of understanding the space, and then I compared it to what I really believed my strengths were, it became clear where I needed to plug in and where I could plug in effectively. And that's really how the to the market model was born, is looking at what do these artisan co-ops need to scale? What does the retail industry need to source social impact goods? And what does my network look like? What does my strengths look like? And that really helped to define to the market's model. 
I love that you say this, and there's a couple of things that I want to point out for Gift Biz listeners. First off is you didn't just jump right in. You really took your time, stepped back, and analyzed everything. First, understanding what was already out there, learning from people who are already doing what you're trying to do. There is absolutely no reason why people have to reinvent the wheel But then you overlaid that, and I think I would say twofold, Jane. I mean, you overlaid that onto what are your personal strengths, because then that's somewhat of a point of differentiation, because it's something that you really know how to do. Also, if it's your strength, it's something that you enjoy doing. And I think that's something that often, as we're starting companies, we forget about, because you want to make sure that you look at the life you will be living that's your dream and make sure that you really want to live that life, that you really like it. You know, you like what you're creating. Heard the quote just recently that don't put your ladder up against the wrong building and start climbing. Don't get to the top and see that your ladder should have been on another building, you know? So you were lucky because you really understood you know, from your prior experience, what you were getting into, and then you did a lot of research first. That's such a great point about really waiting and not climbing the ladder on the wrong building. Running a business that you are hoping to scale is absolutely a, you know, 365, 24-7 task. And pursuing something that you don't feel passionately about can put oneself in a really, really tough position. Yeah. So, After all of this, and you talk about emphasizing your strengths and then having other people possibly do things that you weren't as interested in that have to get done for the business, but as you're setting up the business and you see everything, you analyze what you're going to be doing, what's your point of differentiation, in other words, to the market versus what the other businesses that you were researching who did similar things? How have you made yourself different? Well, one primary differentiation is our focus. So... We are the only socially inspired business that I am aware of that exclusively focuses on highly vulnerable women. So I think that that in itself, we're looking at a a very specific community, which is unique, but unfortunately that community is very big. So Mm -hmm. there is no shortage of cooperatives and communities that we are able to partner with. So that's one point of differentiation because I think other organizations, which I'm a huge fan of and think their work is incredibly important, may have a slightly different focus. So they might be focused on just poverty alleviation writ large, or they might be focused on women's economic empowerment writ large, or maybe they just have one community that they're focused on. So they only work with human trafficking survivors, or they're only working with women with HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. We really felt like when I went through this due diligence process of talking to existing organizations, organizations that were working with artisans, I really felt strongly that the co-ops that were working with HIV AIDS had the very same struggles that the co-ops working with war widows and refugees had. And that really encouraged me to feel like I could work with all of those communities and offer the same types of opportunities and resources and feel confident that the services we were providing to these co-ops, which is a part of our model, is helping to grow them from a management and a professional standpoint, I felt like the services we were providing were going to be valuable to many different types of co-ops within that sort of vulnerable space. That's a major point of differentiation. I would say a second major point of differentiation is because we have a narrow yet broad focus narrow in that we're working with vulnerable communities, but broad in that we are able to work with co-ops from around the world because unfortunately these communities exist so many places. We have 
so many different types of products within our network. What I think is really special is that if we have a client that comes to us and says, I would really love your help in sourcing a social impact or a social good collection for my store or for my brand, we're able to say, great, we can help you source everything from upcycled metal in Haiti to really intricate embroidery in Pakistan. And what's nice from an operational standpoint for the store or for the retailer or indie designer is that they're working with one purchase order. They're working with one vendor, us, and we're able to provide them all of these different types of products and different types of aesthetics, which I think is a little different from many of the groups that may have a very specific regional focus and therefore a sort of aesthetic focus. Sure, that makes sense. Was that the precursor to the whole wholesale department? Well, we launched in November 2014 as an online store, right? and we also had pop-up shops that we were doing as an aside, but I was really surprised by the number of museum stores and retailers that came to us and asked if we would be willing to wholesale product to them. And the truth was, at, at that point, we weren't really prepared to. It wasn't part of our original thinking. But as I reflected more on our model, I felt like that was a really great opportunity for us to be able to expand into that wholesale space. And so at the end of 2015, we began to roll out our custom sourcing and our wholesaling effort, which included not only a catalog of raw materials that indie designers and brands could look at if they're interested in sourcing organic cotton or, again, upcycled metal or certain types of beads, everything from developing that catalog to creating a wholesale line sheet, which we are able to wholesale to uh, retailers. And so I know the wholesale is up and running now, but are you still in development a little bit? Because it's still very, very new. Well, our first spring summer 16 line is out and that line is complete. We also have a complete raw material catalog. What's exciting though is that as we continue to expand at the rate that we are, we're able to add new capabilities within our raw material catalog. So we're just bringing on a group, for example, that's going to be able to work with ceramics. And as we expand, I think, into our fall winter line, I think you'll see an even more expanded line sheet that reflects even more aesthetics. So if I were a retail shop or I was a designer and I was looking to source product, either one, so both examples, I could go to your catalog and see different products that were already there. I could also come to you and say, I'm looking for this type of product. I'm interested in this type of area, et cetera. And you would help source that over and above what's available in the catalog. Yes, we can help source that and we can also help design and source something custom. So it feels like there's a big shift towards people wanting to differentiate their products, which I completely understand as the retail space becomes more and more competitive. And what's nice about working with us at this stage is that we're able to do small batch collaborations 
where oftentimes the custom minimum is compared to the rest of the industry. And so sometimes people can say, gosh, I love this coaster set or this basket set that you're making. I would love to make it exclusive. Would you be willing to do it in these colorways? And we can turn around and say yes, and it's only going to be X minimum number of units. And usually that number of units is significantly lower than what they would be facing if they were trying to start a relationship with a cooperative right off the bat. Because what's great about working with us is the fact that we work with these co-ops day in and day out on so many different distribution channels that we're able to really work with them in a unique way because they know that they have a long-term relationship with us that's pretty comprehensive. Right. And I think, you know, this opens up so much more opportunity too, both for you and for people who are artisans or even shops that are going after the corporate environment because... Nowadays, a lot of people like to give welcome gifts or speaker appreciation gifts or company appreciation at the end of the year type gifts, all those types of things. And never before have they really been able to look at a fair trade option because they want it customized. They want their logo on it or they want it in their company colors. So this just opens up a whole new market for you. It really does. And what's great is that the corporate gifting piece has really taken off very quickly. So we've been able to do everything from speaker gifts for the American Red Cross to bags for Harvard Law, for Georgetown. We can do logoed bags. We can do custom colorways to reflect a brand or a school or whatever it may be on different types of accessories and jewelry. And I think people are really excited about having ethical gifting options through to the market. I really agree with you. All right. So let's talk a little bit. This has all been happy and nice, <laughs> um, mm. you know, in the growth of the business and all of that. Can you bring us to a point where there was a struggle? There was something happening that you did not anticipate or something kind of stalled the process along the way. What was a story like that and how did you overcome? It's hard to think of a specific story. I will say that I think starting a business can often feel like signing yourself up for a constant stream of rejection. And I think that that's something that isn't talked about a lot in articles talking about the excitement of entrepreneurship and being your own boss. If you're constantly pitching and if industry standards in almost anything is getting a yes less than 10% of the time, and that goes from everything from pitching press to pitching stores to pitching investors. We haven't pitched investors yet, but I know that a lot of people do. If you're going to get a no nine times out of 10, if not more, that's a lot of rejection. And I think it's been an interesting process for me. And I would imagine that your listeners are, if they're listening, they're wanting to improve their business, they're probably pretty motivated individuals. And they may be in a position where prior to starting a business, they haven't faced a lot of rejection. I can certainly attest to the fact that I'm a high achiever. I work really, really hard. I push myself really, really hard. And because of that, I generally have been successful at the things that I've put my mind toward. And not to say that rejection means you're not successful, but given the amount that you have to pitch your idea and your product and your concept, it's inevitable that you're going to face a lot of rejection. And that's been such a great but difficult learning process for me is being comfortable with the fact that most people are going to tell me no. And so how do you do that? You get off the phone or you've pitched to somebody and they're just, they're not going to be interested. How do you respond and get back on the horse, if you will, and go and approach the next person with as much optimism and motivation that you had before? 
I think it gets easier over time. I remember my first big box retailer we pitched came back with a not right now. So that door is still open, but I was pretty crushed. I really had it in my head that I thought it was a slam dunk. And I remember almost tearing up and calling my husband, who's also an entrepreneur. And he really, you know, he reminded me that each no means that you're, you know, one step closer to a yes. And statistically, that's right. So I think it's just a function of, of putting yourself out again and again and again and knowing that eventually things are going to begin to gel. Some of it is a numbers game and a a function of persistence. Another part of it is, of course, which I think is very challenging but important is, is knowing that it's not personal. And it feels very personal because it's your business. But when I think about how often I have to tell artisan groups that want to work with us, no, and how it has nothing to do with the founder, has nothing to do with the artisans themselves. I have nothing against them. In fact, I wish them all of the best. I think of how I communicate a no to others and how that's in no way a judgment on them. And that makes me feel better when I hear no's because it reminds me that they're really not telling me as an individual, no, because we don't like you. That's interesting that you're working on both sides of the fence, really. Yeah. You probably give nicer no's because you know how it feels when you get a no. I'd like to say I give nicer no's, but I'm also proud of the fact that I tell people no. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I really continue to struggle with just because I just find it to be so impolite is just people interacting with you and then sort of going silent. So I totally get it if someone's just going to not respond to an email, like a blind email that you've never met them. You send them a cold call, a cold email, and you don't hear back. I think that's fine. I think it's nice if you can say no, thank you. But if not, I understand. But what I still really struggle with is when you interact with someone and then instead of saying thank you, but no, thank you, they just sort of go cold on you. And to me, I just, I feel like that's not not a great way to treat people. And so we really make sure to communicate whether we feel like it's going to work to have a partnership with this group or not. I'm really glad you said that. In my corporate world, I was 15 years with sales and marketing and we had rejection all the time. You know, I learned it way early on. And one of the things we always talked about is obviously the first answer that you want is a yes. The second answer you want is a no, mm-hmm. because then you know, okay, that door is closed. I'm going to move on. The worst are when they string you along. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they either don't respond to email with you or they say, well, not right now, or let's relook at it. And then they probably don't want to tell you no, because mm-hmm. they'll feel bad telling you no. But it's just going to continue. It's wasting both people's time. You're going to call them back. They're going to say no again. It just kicks the can down the road again and again. I think you're right. You have to just very nicely and graciously close the door if you know for sure that it's not going to work. It's better for both parties. And it's more time efficient, too. That's for sure. Absolutely. It really is. Okay, so you're up and established to the market is going great. I know you've been featured in a lot of magazines, as we were talking about in the introduction. What else do you do to get eyes on the business? From a marketing standpoint or from a press standpoint? Any exposure that can bring you in sales? Well, we have been really lucky with Earned Media. I'm really, really grateful for that. We also subscribe to services like Harrow, which is Help a Reporter Out which is a service that for free will send you an email with stories that journalists are working on. These journalists are interested in feedback or sources on certain topics. And oftentimes 
those topics may relate to your business. And so that allows us to just pitch that reporter on that specific story. So that's Mm -hmm. been helpful to us because it often leads to nice little write-ups or blog hits or being quoted in articles. We also work with bloggers, which we've been so fortunate to have so many that have wanted to write about us for free. And I think that that's unusual because of our mission. I think if we were a traditional business, we wouldn't enjoy that sort of honor of being able to work with these bloggers without compensation. But I think so many of these bloggers so believe in women's economic empowerment that they're willing to cover us for nothing. And so we've been really, really fortunate for all of our blogger supporters that have covered us. And they are a huge part of converting viewers to our site. And what about social media? Does that play a role? Absolutely. Social media is definitely a big part of our outreach. I think some mediums are easier to track conversion than others, but we are very active on Pinterest, we're active on Twitter, and we're active on Facebook, as well as Instagram. So it's coming a little bit more easy to track conversions as analytics improve for all of these different systems. But it's definitely imperfect. And so it's, you just have to do your best with Google Analytics to see what's really converting. You know, and it's always a work in progress, because the platforms change, new opportunities come Mm -hmm. up, both in social media and print, you know, and what I'll call just traditional advertising. Mm -hmm. So you have to balance it out, see what works, continue adjusting and, and move along. Yeah, absolutely. Being nimble, I think, is really important. And trying to capture emails is really important because that's obviously a asset you control versus social media, as we've seen with things like Facebook and Instagram. The algorithm can change and then your ability to get in front of your supporters and customers can change pretty radically. Question for you, just because I think this is something that some of our listeners might be curious about. You're working in a global environment. There's a lot of things you're doing in terms of looking at Harrow, potentially providing them some information, bloggers, all of that. How big is your core organization? Just the group of people that you would call corporate. How many people do you have? Maybe not even all full time, but can you share with us a little bit of your structure and then also how you divvy some of these responsibilities? Because obviously we are all time challenged. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, um, I serve as the CEO and then we have a COO, uh, Jill, who is actually out in San Francisco. So we are not actually working in the same space, but that seems to work just fine for us Mm -hmm. because we don't have a physical store. Mm -hmm. And then we have a pretty active group of what I call 1099s. So essentially contractors that are doing different types of work, everything from design to graphic design to backend support for our website. And then we have an incredible number of interns that have been such a force for us on social media. And many of them have interned for us unpaid for some of them close to two years. It's pretty extraordinary. So even before we launched, we had some of these interns that are still with us. So we've been really lucky to have such a great core group of people supporting us. We also have someone who's in charge of our content on our blog, which is called Stories. And we had someone for the last year and just transitioned into having another editor. But besides that, we really rely on the support of our advisors. And we seem to have been able to have a big impact with a fairly small team. 
Yeah, it sounds like a solid and well-rounded structure, though, even though, I mean, I guess the point is you don't have to have a huge number of people to accomplish quite a bit, as long as things are divvied up and people have their responsibilities, etc. I'm really curious about the interns. How did you initiate that whole structure and where are you getting your interns from? I think interns are such an amazing asset. We could not have grown to the extent that we have without them. We have utilized internships.com and we have also utilized college job listserv postings. And those, those seem to have served us very well. We are very clear about what our expectations are, what the hours are, what we're looking for. And because we're a virtual team, we're also really screening for people that are self-starters that are able to operate without consistent oversight and We've been able to screen out some pretty terrific or, you know, screen and identify some pretty terrific candidates that have been helping us with Twitter and Facebook and graphic design and all sorts of assistance that really would be very, very costly if we had to pay a firm to do it for us at this stage. Right. So are all your interns then remote? All of our interns are remote. Even the ones that live near one of the staff members, they're still remote. And that actually works really well for our interns because so many of our interns are in school. And so it's really helpful for them to be able to do their work from their dorm room and have one less place they have to go and one less thing they have to be dressed up for and show up to. And then you said that you're very clear about the hours, etc. Are there specific hours in the day they need to work or hours they need to put in based on projects? So is it more hour driven or is it more project result driven? It's project driven. Yeah, I, you know, I was an intern for ages in both high school and college and always sort of hated the idea that I was being measured on input versus output. And really, I hate that concept, mm-hmm. period. So really, we're very, very output driven. So for if somebody is able to write a blog post that I think is beautifully crafted and they're able to do it in 30 minutes, then great for them. If it takes them eight hours, that's fine too. As long as they are hitting their objectives and staying on top of their work, and if they can't stay on top of it, they're communicating that to us in advance. So we're able to task that out to somebody else, then we're in a good place. Very interesting. I'd love to dive more into that, but I don't think time's going to allow. But let me just ask real quickly. So you have a structured program for your interns. They apply based on specific tasks you need accomplished. And then you probably have a work process that's documented you know, in terms of reviews and you know, additional work or however, however that works. But you have some type of a structure. You don't just bring somebody on and kind of freewheel it. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I feel like if unless you have a specific task that needs to be accomplished, having an intern or a volunteer can sometimes be more time consuming to manage than beneficial if you don't have a specific task that you feel like they can accomplish. And so we definitely only bring on folks that we feel like are able to accomplish those objectives that we've set forth. When people do join us, we ask them to set objectives for their internship so they feel like they have specific goals that they're trying to hit. So for example, if an intern is coming on and they are going to be in charge of Pinterest, we tell them to look at where they are when they start 
managing our Pinterest board, where our followers are, how many repins are we getting a day? And we ask them to track that and set a goal. How many new followers do you want to try to add to our board each month? How much of an increase do you want to try to create in activity for repinning, Mm -hmm. et cetera? So we want them to set specific goals. We also want to hear from them what do you want to try to accomplish in the time that you're with us that will be beneficial for your future career? Because I want to feel like they are gaining something very specific from spending time with us as well, especially because we're not able to pay. Right. No, that was very helpful, Jane. I appreciate it. Just in terms of the structure, it's great information for all of us. We're going to go now into our reflection section. This is a look at you and what has helped you to be successful personally and also for to the market. What has made you successful along the way? If you were to identify a personal trait that you have that you've just kind of known you've had all your life that you've really called upon to be successful, what would that be? I would say I am doggedly persistent. It's very hard to discourage me, and I tend to be encouraged by discouragement, if that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So when people tell me no, it makes me angry, and then it makes me determined once I sort of get past that frustration. So you're going to prove them no, not no. (laughs) Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Let me prove to you why it's not no. (laughs) Oh, no question. I mean, I am fueled by my love for what I do, but I also believe in it fiercely. And when someone doesn't see that vision, assuming that I feel like it's that I think needs to be on board with what we're doing, I'm, I think, appropriate, but also somewhat shameless in, in helping them understand why there is value to what we're creating and what we're building. All right. And what tool do you use either in your workday or what do you do off hours just to stay balanced or to be productive in your life? There is a tool that I swear by for email called Boomerang. And it is a plugin that I think is for Gmail. And I think they may have it on other types of email servers now, but it started on Gmail. And it allows you to, when you send a message or you receive a message, you are able to reschedule it to pop up at the top of your inbox at a certain time. And you can also specify if someone doesn't respond to this email pop it back up to the top of my inbox. So for example, because I do so much pitching and I am trying to get in front of people all the time, I will often email people and ask for their help or ask if we can meet. And I will schedule a boomerang that if someone doesn't respond to that email within a week, it'll pop up to the top of my inbox and that will then remind me to check in with them. It's been an incredible tool in helping to ensure that things don't fall through the cracks. I have Boomerang and I forget to use it sometimes. And then when I do use it, I'm so glad I have it. So you're motivating me to really focus on that a little bit more. I swear by it. I (laughs) just think it is a gift from the gods. (laughs) Everyone talks about now getting to email zero, right? Inbox zero, the end of every day. And sometimes that's not possible, but Boomerang can really help you with that. You know, there's something that that you need to save. You don't really want to put it in a file folder. Mm -hmm. And when you boomerang it, it actually leaves your inbox and just miraculously reappears later Mm -hmm. whenever you tell it to. All right. So I'm motivated to use that more now just because of what you said. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And on the book end or just, you know, continual learning, is there something that you've read lately that you think our listeners could find value in? I constantly look to ink and Forbes 
both.com just to see what some of the articles they're posting about productivity hacks or if I need sort of a reminder about what is the mindset for success. I feel like both of those sites do a really terrific job of curating an interesting information that's sort of a quick and easy read if I'm sitting on the airplane and it's before we take off or if I have a moment in a commute to just have a little refresher. I often will just pull up Inc. Mm -hmm. or Forbes and take a look at what articles are trending and get a little inspiration. There you go. Wonderful. And so you do it all online. You don't have a hard copy of the magazines. Yeah, I'll just pull up what they have online. Yeah. All right. We are going to circle now into my dare to dream question. I would like to present you, Jane, with a virtual gift. This is a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. It's your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. What is inside your box? I love that gift. That sounds like (laughs) an amazing gift. I would love to open this magical gift and find that To The Market is the go-to source for ethical gifting and for ethical sourcing of raw materials and goods. And I think you are well on your way to having that happen. And I love the fact of how thoughtful and prepared and structured your whole approach has been for to the market. And so you're clearly set up for success. So I think that (laughs) this dream is well on its way, as I said. On the show notes page, Gift Biz listeners, you know that I'm going to be putting all the different contact information that Jane has shared with me before the interview. But for people who might be in the car or walking their dog or something like that, what would be the two main places that you would suggest our listeners go and want to see anything more? The first would be to the market.com, which is T-O-T-H-E-M-A-R-K-E-T.com. And that's where you can see a number of the different co-ops that we work with, as well as download our existing line sheet and our raw materials catalog. And the second place I would suggest looking is just popping over to our Facebook page. Our symbol for finding us on Facebook is actually Let's Go TTM. Let's go to the market. So let's go TTM. And that's where you can see more up-to-date news on maybe what we're reading, what we are excited about, what news articles are related to what we're working on. And I think that's just a great hub for information. Perfect. And again, Gift Biz listeners, you know that all of this will be over on the show notes page. The other thing that I just want to point out is if you guys go to the website, one thing that really struck me and that I saw was different, and you do mention this, Jane, as a point of differentiation, is that you have the option to filter the products also by, I'm going to call it your challenge of choice. You know, whether you're wanting to buy products from people who have been abused or people who are in a poverty type situation. So there's lots of different ways you can filter if you're buying products directly and see what's offered. You can do it by region and then you can do it, like I said, by, I don't know what the appropriate way to word that is, Jane, but I'm calling it the life challenge of choice. So I thought that was very interesting. I've never seen that before. Is that unique to you guys? I think so. I think we really wanted people to have the option to, if they you know, really care about human trafficking or they really care about refugees, that they could shop products that are made by those communities. But if they are 
open to cause, what cause they are interested in supporting. They can also shop by country. And then, of course, they can shop by good. So they can shop by category like apparel or shoes or jewelry, home goods, etc. Wonderful. I just I wanted to point that out because I noticed that right away when I first landed on the site and I thought it was very different and very interesting. Thank you. Jane, thank you so, so much. You've really given us a really good look into establishing a business like this that's, again, as I said in the beginning, a little different than other businesses that we've looked at. So I appreciate your generosity and sharing your information, how you started thinking about it and planning with your due diligence in the beginning, all the valuable information that you've talked about, about developing the business and, you know, the interns too was a great nugget of information for us. Okay. I really appreciate it. I thank you for your time and may your candle always burn bright. Learn how to work smarter while developing and growing your business. Download our guide called 25 Free Tools to Enhance Your Business and Life. It's our gift to you and available at giftbizunwrap.com slash tools. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us for the next episode. Today's show is sponsored by the Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo or print a happy birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those who have already left a rating and review. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well. Would you like to be on the show? Or do you know someone who can provide valuable insight from their experiences? If so, we'd love to hear from you. All you need to do is submit a form for consideration. You can access the form at giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash guest. 